Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Wait, I have a question. How do they do that? Was that how it was all supposed to work? Okay, but why? In this podcast, I ask the questions, you get the answers. I'm Abby Eden. This is Abby Asks. All right. Welcome, everybody. On this episode of Abby Asks, we are talking sleep, more specifically children's sleep. And I'm joined by Dr. David Ingram from Children's Mercy Hospital. He specializes in pediatric sleep medicine. And in addition to treating patients, he is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Medicine. So uh, a man with quite a few credentials here on how to make sure your kids are getting the sleep they need. Uh, So Dr. Ingram, we, we've talked before. You're in our uh, Sleep Week series. Uh, you'll be um, speaking more in depth tomorrow during our series that airs at 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, but kids come with their own set of sleep issues. And uh, parent, it's much to parent chagrin. Um, so at what point in their young lives should a child start being sleep trained? That's a great question, and uh, the simple answer is when they're ready. <laughs> the tough part is knowing when that is, right? So uh, typically that's around four to six months of life, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one reason is our internal body clock or our circadian rhythm is really still developing during that first four to six months of life. So if you think about what newborn sleep is typically like, they're usually sleeping in these little chunks kind of spread out throughout 24 hours. And as we age and get older, that internal body clock matures, and we start to sleep more consolidated at night, especially around six months or so, is when we can start to expect infants to really start doing that. The other thing that's happening in the first six months of life is usually kids still need a feed in the during the night, right? Until about six months, and then they usually don't need it around that time for a typical healthy infant. Uh, so. For those two reasons, usually it's around the six-month point when we start to think about sleep training. But that doesn't mean you can't start doing things before that. And so something that's simple that maybe people can start doing around three months of life or so is to uh, put a good bedtime routine in place and start to put your infant down awake but still drowsy, right? And so what that does is that starts teaching your infant um, uh, kind of the cues that signal to them that it's time to go to bed at night. And it also helps them start to learn, uh, potentially, to fall asleep without you there. Uh, So the short answer is usually around six months of life. But you can start doing some bedtime routine things before then to kind of set the stage uh, for uh, when you really start to do sleep training a little bit later. One thing that you said that uh, really stuck with me during our last conversation was putting them asleep, drowsy but awake. Um, Many parents, including myself, sort of got into the routine where she would fall asleep while she's eating a bottle, and then that was really easy, and you just gently put her down, and then a few hours later, she's up again wanting to eat. So explain that 
to me and, and why that whole feeding them to sleep is maybe not a great option. Sure. I mean, and like a lot of times you got to get through the night. You right. got to do, do what you, you, you got to do. do. Right. Uh, <laughs> but what happens is, you know, we learn a certain way to fall asleep and we're all like that, even as adults, right? You have your pillow a certain way or you have the fan on or the radio on or whatever it is. Right. And those are all things you get used to. And that signal you and your body and your brain that it's sleep time. Uh, and the same thing happens with infants, right? Uh, when they're being rocked to sleep or, or fed the bottle or breastfed to sleep, that's how they're learning to fall asleep. And so uh, then when they wake up a few hours later, it makes perfect sense that that's what they want again, right? That's how they've learned to fall asleep. And so if you're not there, then they'll signal to you. They'll cry out, right? And until you provide that set of circumstances again, it will be difficult for them to fall asleep. So the trick is to replace you at the beginning of the night with something else that they don't need in the middle of the night, right? <laughs> so, uh, so that's why, let's say, if someone is uh, feeding their baby until they fall asleep, uh, maybe move that feed to the beginning of the bedtime routine or right before the bedtime routine uh, so that they're still getting that feed before they fall asleep, but it's not associated directly with when they fall asleep uh, at that moment. And so uh, that is a way to break that association, right? Um, and there are all kinds of associations you can develop, uh, whether it's feeding or rocking or whatever. But uh, the important part is to identify that and then replace it with something else so that the child doesn't need you in the middle of the night anymore. Uh, so, and they're able to fall asleep independently. That sounds like a pipe dream to a lot of parents. That sounds pretty amazing. It's easy to say. <laughs> it's hard to do. Uh, sure. Which is, right, all of this stuff with sleep, right, the information is not uh, that hard. It's mm -hmm. applying it. Uh, to your family and your child, that is really the challenge. It's not easy. It's no. not easy for anybody. And uh, so it, there's no kind of shame in asking for help or, or uh, uh, when you need it because it's, it is definitely not easy. And it's easy for me to sit here and give you a list of things to do, but it's hard to apply it to, to your family and your child many times. Well, and you're a parent, and, and we discussed that uh, there are some sleep training methods. And, for example, cry it out. That was not something you were really wanting to do for your daughter, just personal preference. Yeah, and there's a lot of different ways to do sleep training, mm -hmm. right? Um, and th there's no, one is not better than the other necessarily. Mm -hmm. It is uh, sticking with one and being consistent. Mm -hmm. uh, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure if you start one and then you're inconsistent with it. Uh, then that just makes things actually a lot harder as you go forward and maybe switch to a different method. And so you have to ask yourself as a parent, what are you able to do, right? Like uh, with the cried out method uh, or standard extinction is, uh, are you, would you be able to listen to crying for that long at night? And for th a lot of people, the answer is no. Probably it was most, not easy. Probably most people that, <laughs> that I see, the answer is going to be no. Yeah, uh, it was hard. And if that is you, then that's okay. Mm -hmm. Then just move on to one of the other uh, methods that has is not kind of uh, as strict, but the thing there's a trade-off there. It, it's going to take longer probably if you go with a more gradual method, and there's really no method that doesn't involve some amount of crying mm -hmm. uh, and that isn't hard. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just uh, picking the one that you think that you'll be able to to stick to as a family. Uh, the the method that you mentioned that I actually kind of liked um, and have thought about as we've had some difficult nights here and there um, was the idea where you set a, an interval of time and then you go back and check in based on your interval of time, not the child's crying. Sure. So this is, again, the basic idea is 
uh, that you're still able to go and see the child, but it's not based on the child's response. It's based on something else. So you're breaking that association. So uh, you have your bedtime routine in place. Uh, you put the child down awake, uh, but drowsy, and you leave. And they may not like that. They may start crying. Uh, so when you leave the room, you look at your watch, right? And you s wait some amount of time. The amount of time that you're able to kind of tolerate that, mm -hmm. which could be 30 seconds for you. It could be a minute. Whatever it is, uh, figure that out beforehand. Mm -hmm. And then you leave, and you wait until that amount of time is gone. And then you go back in the room. You provide some brief reassurance to the child, verbal reassurance, but you don't pick them up and make a big fanfare out of it. Uh, and then you leave again. Right? And so it's brief, it's boring, uh, and then you look at your watch when you leave again. And then you uh, can increase that amount of time gradually, um, and then you go and check on the child. That's giving yourself reassurance your child is okay. It's reassuring the child that you know, you're still there, but eventually they're going to fall asleep, and uh, the idea is that they're going to fall asleep in between one of those checks. So they're falling asleep independently without you there. Now, uh, one thing to remember with this method or any method uh, in terms of sleep training is things will probably get worse before they get better uh, because your child is not going to like this, right? They want whatever that was that they were getting before, and so they're going to um, protest more, right? Mm -hmm. So the first couple nights especially, uh, things may get worse, and then gradually uh, over time they may start to get better. Uh, so expect that. Uh, getting worse before get better. You know, that, that's called an extinction burst. Uh, expect that when you're going to do any, essentially any behavior change uh, with your kid. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. It's a rough time. Uh, we'll move on to more toddlers, young children. Um, this one I, th I think is really difficult because they're not in a crib, so they can easily get out of bed, maybe open their door, and come downstairs or, or right. do whatever. And, uh, and this is a real frustration for, I know, parents of many young children um, if they're having difficulty sleeping. So how do you deal with a toddler or a young child who, in many ways, can do a lot of things adults can do? <laughs> right. So there's, that is a period of transition. Anytime you have a period of transition there where things are changing, mm -hmm. a lot of times sleep problems happen, mm -hmm. right? So for the toddler... There's several things possibly going on, right? For like the three-year-old, they um, are cognizant of the fact that even though they're going to bed, everybody else is still out there, uh, you know, having fun watching television or whatever they're doing as a family. Really, we're doing laundry and dishes, let's right. be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, so they want to be a part of that, right? Mm -hmm. They don't want to miss out on the fun. That makes perfect sense. The second thing that's happening is uh, this is a time for transitions for naps a lot of times, right? So they're going from maybe one or two naps to maybe two to one naps, or they're dropping their nap completely, mm -hmm. right? Usually around three to five years of life is when that happens. And so when you're dropping your nap, that affects how uh, easy it is to fall asleep at night. Uh, and the reverse of that is also true. If you don't really need that nap and you're still napping, that makes it a lot harder to fall asleep at an earlier bedtime. So. Uh, that's another thing that's happening that's a transition that can make that difficult. And then the third thing is that you mentioned is, uh, you know, you're switching from a crib to a toddler bed. Mm -hmm. And then the child can get out of the room. Mm -hmm. They're no longer kind of contained in that crib. And that presents uh, another challenge as a parent. So uh, one way to kind of address several of these things mm -hmm. uh, at once is to do something called bedtime fading which is actually, uh, it's one of my favorite things to talk about with families, which is you temporarily move the bedtime a little bit later. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's say that typically what happens is, you know, the child 
has a lot of uh, resistance at bedtime. They have, uh, you know, excuses. I want another glass of water. <laughs> I want uh, to use the restroom again, whatever it is, to prolong that bedtime routine. And so then it becomes much, much longer, and your bedtime actually gets moved later because of that, and they're not falling asleep, uh, you know, un until maybe, let's say, 10 o'clock. And it's usually with the parents staying there because they won't let the parent leave, mm -hmm. right? And then after the child falls asleep, the parent sneaks out of there. Um, but then the same thing happens that happens with the, the, with the younger child, which is they wake up two or three hours later, the parent's not there, and they cry out or they leave their room, mm -hmm. right? And most of the time they end up in the parent's bed then the rest of the night. So one way to go about this is to temporarily move their bedtime later. Okay. Um, keep their wake time the same, but very, just for a, a short period of time, move their bedtime later to when they're actually falling asleep. You're not taking away any sleep because they're not asleep during that time anyways. <laughs> but what you're doing is you're cutting out that time where you're kind of butting heads with them. Mm -hmm. You're shortening the bedtime routine. You're aligning when they're actually falling asleep with their actual internal body clock where it's at. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it makes it easier for them to fall asleep at that time. Now, the same principles apply to this child that apply to the infant where uh, you want to be leaving the room before they fall asleep. Uh, and then there's other things that we can talk about in terms of how do we keep them in there, mm -hmm. what's a positive reward system to address that. Mm -hmm. uh, but then uh, once the child is falling asleep, you know, within 15 or 20 minutes, uh, then you can start to move that bedtime back. Uh, and I would do that very slowly. It is very easy for us to stay up later. It is very challenging for us to actually go to bed earlier mm -hmm. uh, and make a big change there. And, uh, and we can talk about the reasons for that. But uh, so I would move that bedtime back about 15 minutes every other night once they're falling asleep within a reasonable amount of time hmm. until you get to that goal bedtime that you're shooting for. Um, now let's say you do that, but then the child is leaving the room in the middle of the night. Right. Uh, that, is, that happens all the time, right? Yeah. So there's different ways to go about that, but uh, one way uh, that is a positive reward system is to uh, have like a bedtime pass system. So. This would be uh, where you make little passes, and I would do it with your child, you know, get little three-by-five cards, doesn't have to cost you anything, and decorate them, you know, glitter, markers, whatever, uh -huh. and make two or three of those. And they get those at the beginning of the night. And uh, if they need to leave the room for whatever reason, you know, they needed a glass of water, they got scared and they want to seek reassurance, they can do that, but they have to turn in the pass to you. Uh, if they don't do that, uh, and they keep the pass until the morning, they can turn it into you for some reward. Okay. I would make it something cheap, easy, something you can do on a daily basis sure. that you can give them right away. Um, not candy, uh, other stickers. things. Stickers. Stickers, right, right, things like that. Yeah. Uh, and so I'd start with two or three passes like that, and just so that if even if they use one or two, they still have one in the morning, mm -hmm. they can make that connection. Uh, and then over time, you decrease the amount of passes that they have gradually and with the eventual goal that they're staying in their room all night. That's one way I to go about it. I love that idea. There's a lot of other ways, but that's one possible way to go about it. That is really, I mean, it's a great idea. And it may sound like bribery to some people, but I, to me, it's, it's more of a, well, it's something you learn in the real world, right? If you do something the right way, you you get the reward right you know <laughs> and, and exactly and you Hopefully. bring up a great point right there's a difference between bribe mm -hmm. and positive reinforcement so you know i love my job mm -hmm. uh i love going to work every day uh but if i stop getting my paycheck at the end of the month 
pretty soon I'd stop showing up, right? <laughs> that is a positive reward. Uh, that is different than a bribe, right? The positive reward happens after the behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, the bribe happens before the behavior has happened. Uh -huh. So, uh, and in case my bosses are listening, I love uh -huh. my job. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, so that's a, a great point you bring up, and it's an important distinction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. And you mentioned that there is a reason that it's easier for us to stay up late and not as easy for us to move up our bedtime. I'm assuming you mean adults, children, doesn't matter. So, right. So they, uh, it's really interesting. We have an internal body clock mm -hmm. and that helps keep track of what time of day it is, right? So uh, you, you wake up in the morning, you get some bright sunlight, that helps reset mm -hmm. our clock. At night, it's dark out, our brain senses that, we start producing melatonin, that helps us feel drowsy and uh, helps us fall asleep at night. Uh, but what's interesting is our internal body clock is not actually exactly 24 hours long, which is what you think, right? Mm -hmm. It's actually, for most people, a little bit longer than 24 hours, just a little bit. And so uh, if you take a person, you or I, and you put us in an environment with no clocks, no, no outside light, no nothing, we don't know what time it is, mm -hmm. and you watch what happens to our sleep. Every night, we'll probably on average stay up a little bit later, like maybe half an hour later every night. Uh, and we'll eventually work our way around the clock, actually. Um, and so that's why getting up in the morning uh, and getting that bright sunlight helps reset that, and it is very important. Uh, and that is also the reason why it is very easy for us to stay up later at night. And it is ex usually, for most people, it is harder to go to bed earlier. Interesting. That also helps actually explain uh, why we're able to stay up during the day most uh -huh. all, right? Like, so there's, to understand any of these interventions, uh, mm -hmm. we have to understand how sleep works. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is there's basically two things that affect when you're awake or when you're asleep at any point in time. Mm -hmm. One thing is uh, how long you've been awake, mm -hmm. right? And we all kind of intuitively know that. If the longer you're awake, the sleepier you get. Right. And that is our sleep pressure, our drive to sleep. And we actually think we understand what kind of the chemical is that signals that to the brain. There's a chemical called ADP, which is a byproduct of energy consumption in the brain. And as that builds up throughout the day, we feel sleepier and sleepier. Uh, that's actually how caffeine helps us be more alert. It actually blocks the effect of that chemical. It's a temporary effect, uh -huh. right? Which is why we want to avoid caffeine near bedtime. Sure. Uh, but that's not the only thing that's going on. Because if that was the only thing that was going on, we'd wake up in the morning, we'd build up some sleep debt, right, for a couple of hours, and then we'd go to sleep again. We'd right. sleep off that sleep debt, then we'd wake up, then we'd, right? And remember we talked, that sounds like an infant. Right. That is an infant sleep, right? And so there's some other force that is opposing that sleep during the day. And that other force is our internal body clock, our circadian rhythm. Huh. And that is actually an alerting force. It keeps us awake during the day, and it opposes that sleep pressure that we're building up. So from the moment that we wake up in the morning, our sleep pressure is building up because mm -hmm. we're awake. And at the same time, our alerting force of our circadian rhythm is opposing that and keeping us awake. And so that's why, actually, most people feel kind of drowsy after lunch, right? Like in some cultures, right. you get siesta time. Right. right. And most people think it has something to do with what you eat. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have anything to do with what you eat. Huh. It has everything to do with the fact that usually in the early afternoon, you have a little dip in your circadian rhythm. So all that sleep debt that you're building up during the day, it becomes start to become unmasked, and you feel a little drowsy. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is your circadian rhythm picks up again, and you get a second wind, right? And right. so... In the early evening, most people kind of get a second wind, mm -hmm. and they feel uh, 
very alert. It is almost impossible to fall asleep at that time. Yeah. Right? Uh, and that is also another reason why it's hard to fall asleep at the early, much earlier, uh, if you make that change too quickly. So sure. that those are the two things that are happening that are kind of opposing each other. And then at nighttime, when it gets dark out, the circadian rhythm force drops, and all that sleep debt that you've built up throughout mm -hmm. the day takes over, and you fall asleep. Right? And then over oh, wow. the course of the night, uh, you sleep off that sleep debt, ideally until it's gone, <laughs> uh, and, it, and then you wake up when, once it's gone. Right? This is fascinating to me, and we're getting off the child topic here a little bit, but I do think, um, I know, in fact, that we have a lot of people, especially who watch our early morning shows that, that do shift work, um, which is why they're up at 4 a.m. Watching, <laughs> watching the news. They might be watching it before they're going to sleep. That, that seems to explain why shift work is also so hard on your body. Shift work can be hard on your body, mm -hmm. and it is hard to do. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are a lot of studies out now associating shift work with possible health effects. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, having some behavioral strategies in place and sometimes medications in addition to those behavioral strategies for shift workers can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, and for people out there listening who, you know, are making these schedules, mm -hmm. uh, think about how you're going to have them rotate through that, mm -hmm. right? Does it make more sense for them to go... Uh, earlier shift to later shift to later shift? Or does it make more sense to go the opposite direction, sure. right? Based on what we were just saying, it makes a lot more sense, right, to shift people from earlier to later around the clock that way, because that goes more with what our natural body, body rhythm is trying to do anyways, yeah. compared to going backwards, right. right? That's the hardest way you could do it. So yeah, absolutely, shift work, uh, it's it's a real problem for a lot of people, right? Yeah. People, you know, doctors, a lot yes, of doctors, yeah. nurses, uh, firefighters or other people where uh, they, you have to be available mm -hmm. at kind of all times of the day. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's very problematic. My dad did it for years and years, and thankfully he's done doing it now. But oh, I just remember thinking, you are waking up at 7 o'clock at night. That's horrible. It's hard, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so getting back to kids now. Sorry yeah. for that little interlude, but I think people are interested in that. I certainly am. Yeah. Um, let's talk about teenagers. Uh, this is a problem it feels like for so many people once again yeah a they have a lot of activities they have stress they also kind of go at their own clock um so how much sleep should teenagers be getting every night and what is an ideal bedtime and and does that make a difference it, if they're going to bed at midnight and waking up at 10 a.m in some fantasy world does that make a difference? So many questions I'm throwing at I you. I think every, pretty much every teen out there would love that schedule that you just put out there. Uh, so, right, teens need about eight to 10 hours of sleep at okay. night for optimal health. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's actually a big range, though, right? Mm -hmm. So that's two hours every night wiggle room we're giving them. Right. You have that up over the course of a week, right? You're talking about... Uh, 14 hours. That's a, that's a lot of sleep. If I changed the amount of sleep that you got this week by 14 hours, Woo. you would feel that. Uh, uh, yes, I right? would. So uh, we give a broad range, but the reality is most teens are not getting even eight hours, right? Mm -hmm. They are sleep deprived. Mm -hmm. And there could be a lot of reasons for that. But the two things I think that we kind of have to understand first is one is their natural internal body clock, their circadian rhythm mm -hmm. is usually shifting after they go through puberty by about two hours. Interesting. Later. So if they were going to bed, let's say, at 9 o'clock before, now they're going to kind of naturally want to go to bed around 11 o'clock. It's mm. hard for them to fall asleep before that. The problem, though, is, and right, if they have no obligations and they can wake up at any time they want, 
No problem. Sure. They'll sleep until their sleep debt is gone, then they'll wake up and uh, they'll be well refreshed, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is they have other obligations, right? Uh, and so they go to school. That's their job. Mm -hmm. And a lot of high schools are starting, you know, 7.20 in the morning mm -hmm. or so, 7.20, 7.30. So uh, that we have just built in a schedule where we're almost guaranteeing them sleep deprivation uh, because to get to school on time, you know, to get up, get ready, get you know, travel to school, they're probably getting up, I don't know, 6 o'clock or something like that. Sure. So they can't fall asleep before 11. They have to get up at 6. That's seven hours if they're asleep that entire time and if they're going to bed at 11. Right. So, and that's not enough. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, that's kind of a structural problem that's in place. And so that's actually why, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and a lot of other me medical organizations have advocated for high school start times at 8.30 or later mm -hmm. um, uh, to help accommodate teens' kind of natural sleep cycle and get them enough sleep so that they're able to learn and not crash their cars mm -hmm. and things like that. So um, that's, those are two factors. But then the other factors are, well, then what do they do when they're sleep deprived, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to catch up to them. Mm -hmm. you know, sleep is a bodily function, and you can't stop it. Mm -mm. Uh, eventually, it's going to catch up to you, and you're going to crash, right. right? So what does a typical uh, teen do? They're sleep deprived during the week, and they sleep in on the weekend, mm -hmm. right? And that makes perfect sense because they're trying to sleep off their sleep debt that mm -hmm. they've accumulated. So let's say that they're getting... Two, two less hours than what they really need every day during the week, right? By the end of Friday, they've accumulated 10 hours of sleep debt. So they've got 10 hours they need to sleep off Yikes. somewhere. So they'll sleep in until 10 or noon or even mm -hmm. the early afternoon. The problem with that is that that messes up our internal body clock. We, our brain no longer knows what time it's supposed to wake up and go to sleep anymore. Mm -hmm. It is giving yourself jet lag. Every oh, week, wow. right? You, if I you didn't think it, about it that way. It, that is exactly what is happening. Huh. You are, let's say you take a flight, you know, uh, overseas. Mm -hmm. You're going to feel crummy right. for several days, right? Uh, you're going to be all tired. You're going to have a hard time sleeping at night, and you're going to be uh, wanting to sleep during the day. You know, over time, you know, over a week or two, you adjust. Your body mm -hmm. adjusts, right? And your internal body clock aligns to whatever that schedule is, and then things are copacetic again. But that is exactly what teens are doing to themselves every single week when they sleep in. Okay. And our rule of thumb is for about every hour that you sleep in on the weekend or every time zone that you cross, so to speak, it takes about a day for your body to adjust to that. Oh, no. So if they're sleeping in five hours on the weekend, their week is shot, right? They're going to feel horrible. They feel crummy, right? Uh, and so that is something that happens that really kind of compounds the problem. And so what else do they do? They're tired they start drinking coffee or other caffeinated mm -hmm. products to help keep them alert. Like we talked about, that helps kind of mask our sleep debt. But, of course, that's a temporary effect, and it doesn't really fix the problem, right? Mm -hmm. And then if they're doing that too late at night, that makes their sleep worse. Right. So uh, there are th things that kind of can compound the problem in addition to the uh, just schedule constrictions. Uh, so it's a really hard time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think I could. We can all look back on our teen years and think, oh, I don't know if I want to do that again, <laughs> well, for a lot of reasons, yeah. right? But but yeah, that that sounds really tough. And there are so many demands on teens that they really are working up until that eleven o'clock bedtime and probably drinking diet coke to get through it or whatever, whatever their caffeinated beverage is. Sure. Uh, and because of that, we're, you're also seeing that some teens have insomnia, maybe caused by stress or, or other factors. Um, 
what, you know, if they're doing everything else right, they've changed all their other behaviors, talk to me about cognitive behavioral therapy and what that process is like. Sure. So cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBTI is the abbreviation we use for it, it's just talking to people about um, what their thoughts are about sleep and then what their behaviors are around sleep. Uh, and by addressing those two things, then hopefully we're able to address their insomnia. So a typical story that I'll hear, you know, is that the, the person knows that they need their eight hours or whatever mm -hmm. to perform best in life. And, and so they're trying to do everything right. They got their list of the 10 things, you know, and they're, they're checking them off and, and doing all those healthy sleep behaviors. But it's just not working. And so they'll come in and they're like, okay, I need to be, you know, in bed at whatever, nine mm -hmm. or whatever it happens to be for them to get that amount of sleep. And they lay there and they can't fall asleep. And then they start getting stressed out about it because they know that they need to fall asleep because if they don't fall asleep, man, they're going to be tired in the morning and it's going to be hard for them to be, you know, at their optimal during the day. And then they just start getting stressed about it and they start worrying about it more. And that just makes it harder to fall asleep, right? Mm -hmm. we, we all have nights like that. Totally. Right? Like, yes. Uh, and the problem is if that happens on a frequent basis, then you're always kind of sleep deprived. So uh, how do we kind of break that cycle, right? Uh, and so for that person, uh, we'll s typically start with a little bit of education about sleep. So we talked about the, the, two, for, the two factor model, the mm -hmm. two forces that uh, combine to help determine when we're awake and we're asleep. So they kind of have an understanding of that. And then we start maybe talking about their sleep schedule. So uh, having them keep a sleep diary for a couple of weeks and then reviewing that with them to make, maybe make some schedule changes. And so, for example, one thing that we'll a lot of times do is We'll move their bedtime uh, to a little bit later, like just what we did for the younger child, sure. right? To when they're actually falling asleep. Again, we're not taking away any sleep because they're not asleep during that time anyways. Right. So, you know, rule number one is, you know, don't get into bed until you feel sleepy. Mm -hmm. If you're not feeling sleepy, there's no point in getting in your bed. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that happens is if, if uh, you get into bed and you can't fall asleep, and let's say you start getting frustrated, 20, 30 minutes goes by and you're like, I'm not going to fall asleep yet, mm -hmm. get out of bed. Sure. Go do something boring, you know, go to another room, read a boring book, mm -hmm. whatever it is, something without a screen, mm -hmm. right? Because we know that light will affect our circadian rhythm. Right. Uh, and then do that until you feel drowsy again. Mm -hmm. And then once you start to feel tired or drowsy, then you can get back into bed. Uh, and then you start the process over. And you can do that all night long. The keys are you got to keep your wake time the same, though. Uh -huh. uh, your wake time is kind of your anchor. Mm -hmm. So even if you have a bad night's sleep and you're going to have some bad night's sleep when you start doing this process, then you're going to keep your wake time the same so that uh, you're actually going to use your sleep debt to your advantage the next night, right? So you're going to keep your wake time the same. You're not going to nap during the day. Okay. And then you're going to keep your bedtime the same the next night. And chances are you're going to be a lot sleepier then because you're going to have built up that sleep debt. Mm -hmm. But we're going to hold on to that and we're going to use it that next night to our advantage, right? Nice. Uh, and if you're consistent with that for a few weeks, then usually that gets you back on track. Um, and the other thing to notice about what we're doing there is we're reassociating our bed or our sleep space with just sleep. We're, we're not associating with it. Uh, with us laying there worrying about sleep, mm -hmm. right? And that helps retrain our body and retrain our mind that that space is just uh, used for sleep. Just like when we were talking about the infant or sure. the toddler, right? It's the same underlying kind of principles, just uh, adapted for uh, the, the teen or the older adult. Um, and so that's kind of broad strokes uh, how we go about that. Certainly people have real uh, other anxiety disorders or mm -hmm. 
uh, or in kids, they can have nightmares mm -hmm. or night tears and things like that. So those are other issues that maybe we'll have to address along with that. That's kind of a broad overview of uh, CBTI. We actually have a uh, sleep psychologist uh, mm -hmm. that a, lo a lot of times I'll utilize, Kevin Smith, Dr. Kevin Smith, uh, is wonderful and uh, is a member of our team where if what I'm suggesting uh, for a child is not working and I feel like they could benefit from behavioral therapy, then um, we can get him on board as well and he can be uh, a really wonderful asset for him. That's awesome. And, you know, if it, if it goes beyond that, if it's something physical, for example, and it's, uh, um, you know, sleep apnea in children or, or something like that, what, first of all, how common are true physical sleep disorders in, in children? Yeah, uh, uh, pretty common or else I'd be out of the job. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, sleep apnea, we usually think of adults who uh, maybe, you know, we put on a little bit of weight and maybe that's a contributor to why they're having trouble breathing at night. They're snoring really loud, things like that. Sleep apnea also affects kids. If you look at all kids, uh, maybe it's about 2 to 3% of all kids have sleep apnea, which may sound like not a lot, but that is more common than epilepsy in kids. It's more common than type 1 diabetes in kids. Wow. Uh, and the same goes for restless leg syndrome. Restless leg syndrome is about 2 to 3% of all kids, right? So these are physical, uh, you know, sleep disorders or physiological sleep disorders that can really impair the quality of your sleep. So, uh, you know, if there's a child who is snoring very loudly, gasping at night, snorting and waking up, uh, that could be a sign of sleep apnea. Um, to figure that out, we'd have to do a sleep study mm -hmm. uh, to kind of quantify that and put a number to that. Uh, but that's something that, where if that's happening a lot during the course of the night, that can wake you up a lot during the night. And even if you're getting enough sleep, it would not be good quality sleep, and you'll be tired during the day or can contribute to other health uh, problems potentially mm -hmm. during the day as well. Like ADHD, you mentioned that that could be a contributor yeah, so or a symptom of it? Absolutely. So, like, uh, if you or I had mm -hmm. sleep apnea, um, we'd be tired. We'd be dragging. We'd wake up in the morning, and we'd be fighting to keep our eyes open, mm -hmm. right, throughout the day. Young kids, and teens are a lot of times like that, too. Mm -hmm. Young mm -hmm. kids, you know, the five-year-old with sleep apnea, a lot of times will be kind of the opposite. They get tired. They are bouncing off of the walls, mm -hmm. right? And so... They have concentration problems, they're hyperactive, and they can look a lot like ADHD. Mm -hmm. and, and they may have ADHD. Sure. Uh, uh, these two things a lot of times go together. Mm -hmm. um, and by identifying and treating the sleep apnea, many times we can kind of turn down the volume on the ADHD symptoms. may not make it go completely go you know, away, mm -hmm. but it'll help a lot of times um, in, a, in a child who does have ADHD. It's so interesting to me how much how many issues sleep can cause in children and how many children have these real physical problems with sleep and uh, getting tonsils removed, adenoids removed, that could be a possible treatment. Right. So let's say, you know, you're doing everything right. You, oh my mm -hmm. gosh, my child snores. Or we better go see somebody about this. And you get the sleep study and it shows sleep apnea. What are you going to do about it? Right. In adults, usually the first thing is we're talking about doing CPAP where you wear a mask on your nose at night and it just takes air from the room and it blows air into your airway. It's very simple, mm -hmm. right? It's just air. Yeah. It's heated, heated, humidified, purified air. It's the best <laughs> air you ever breathe. So what that does is that creates extra pressure in the airway and it stents it open so that it's not collapsing, causing the pause in breathing. Uh, and that is an option in kids as well. Mm -hmm. And it works. Uh, the problem is you got to wear the darn thing. Yeah. Uh, and in kids, 
uh, more often we're talking about taking the tonsils and the adenoids out because uh, those can create uh, obstruction in the airway. Mm -hmm. And if you take them out, then a lot of times that relieves that obstruction and they're able to breathe and not have sleep apnea. And, and then they don't have to potentially go use the CPAP. Sometimes mm -hmm. we take them out, but they still need the CPAP if they have really bad sleep apnea or if they have other reasons for having sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, you know, I see a lot of children who have Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And the, almost, you know, the majority of those kids, whether or not they snore, have sleep apnea. Interesting. And, um, and so we usually will start with taking their tonsils and adenoids out. But a lot of times they have more than one reason for having sleep apnea. And so a lot of times we'll end up doing CPAP anyway or other treatments in addition to taking the tonsils and adenoids out. So... Uh, so tonsils and adenoids are very commonly the mm -hmm. first thing that we do, but I kind of think of the treatments as kind of a treatment menu. Mm -hmm. And there are several things on that menu, and we have to kind of pick and choose to uh, individualize that for that child and what's going on with them uh, and what works for the family. Yeah. Is there, I think, I mean, we have more than covered all of these things that I wanted to cover on this list. Uh, what am I missing? What are things that parents may not know about their kids' sleep that we haven't discussed? <laughs> You're like, um, do you know how many years of medical school I went to for this? No, I, <laughs> That's a long list, I'm sure. I think what's more interesting is what we don't know about sleep. There's sure, still, sure. I love sleep medicine because it is something where we're learning something new every day. Mm -hmm. And we as a field are really kind of still in our infancy. And mm -hmm. there's a tremendous amount of research being done, and it is very exciting because we're having to kind of revise our ideas are the way we think about sleep and how we treat sleep problems uh, pretty often. Yeah. Uh, and so that's exciting because we kind of get to be at the forefront of things and uh, contribute to those changes uh, as people who specialize in this. So that is really exciting to me. I say keep your ears open. Yeah. There will be you know new studies coming out uh, and new news stories and everything about, mm -hmm. um, about sleep and, and how we think about it as time goes on. You know, what I think is really fascinating, um, and we talked to uh, another doctor about this, um, but I think it goes for kids as well. I know when I was growing up, um, sleep was sort of an afterthought. Like, you know, if I was tired when I woke up to go to school, you know, you're being lazy, you know, you're just being a grumpy teenager, get up, go to school, no big deal. And, you know, even as adults, I feel, um, up until very recently, it was like, well, you can go on four hours of sleep, you know, stop your whining. And now I think people are finally realizing so many of our health problems have come from a lack of sleep and a lack of value of sleep. Do you see that societal shift in your line of work? I see the people who have sleep problems. Uh, sure, so. sure, yeah, yeah. But are you seeing people say, but, like, uh, finally addressing in their in their kids um, that there may actually be a problem, whereas perhaps 20 years ago you may have just been, like, some lazy teenager who is not getting their rear end out of bed? Right, so, that, you know? like, so, so you know, the question is where is sleep in our priority mm -hmm. things? And that's hard. We have a lot of competing priorities. Right. Right? There's a lot of things that are important in life. <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, you know, I have a biased view, but I've put sleep near the top of that. I would sure. put it right up there with nutrition and fitness, mm -hmm. right? It, nutrition, fitness, and sleep mm -hmm. are kind of the triumvirate of health, mm -hmm. right? Those are the things that we can be doing uh, to help optimize how long we live and how well we live. Mm -hmm. um, and so as, you know, the father of sleep medicine is a guy named Bill DeMent. He... So I would always say drowsiness is red alert. You know, if you were that teen, if you're seeing your teen 
fighting to stay awake, fighting to keep their eyes open, they are drowsy. And the next step is sleep. Mm -hmm. And there's something going on there. Uh, it could be they're not getting enough sleep or they have some sleep disorder or whatever. Something we need to look into so that they can feel better and uh, be as healthy as they can be. I mean, we all know what it feels like to get a good night's sleep or a bad night's sleep. Mm -hmm. And so all the other kind of long-term health um, consequences aside, wouldn't it be nice to feel better? Mm -hmm. That's what we all want, right? Right. So I, that's, I'd put sleep near the top of that list. Yeah, definitely. And it's been really fascinating for me this last six weeks or so that we've been working on these stories to just find out how many things sleep affects. You know, you just go through your daily life without really thinking about needing a good night's sleep. Um, so I think it's really fascinating. Um, anything else that parents... Um, maybe need to know any words of wisdom that you maybe always give your, your patients, parents? Oh, I'm all tapped out of words of wisdom. No, uh, <laughs> you know, I think before doing any of these things, uh -huh. uh, if you have a worry about your child's mm -hmm. sleep, I would start by talking to your child's pediatrician. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of very good, smart, experienced general pediatricians out there who mm -hmm. have, have to grapple with these issues a lot, right? Mm -hmm. You know, sleep problems are common in kids, so they're hearing about them a lot. Mm -hmm. And so they can many times help assess, is there some worry for a, a physical problem that could be contributing to the child's uh, sleep problem mm -hmm. or not? Or what are some behavioral things we can get started on? Uh, so before doing any of this stuff, I would, you know, have them take their child to the general pediatrician uh, as a first step. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great advice. Dr. David Ingram, thank you so much for joining us uh, today here on the podcast. Um, once again, he's at Children's Mercy Hospital. So if you need his services, you can go to Children's Mercy. Um, maybe if your kid's having any sleep issues, talk to your primary care doctor, your pediatrician, um, as he said. And perhaps you need to see him and his team down at Children's Mercy. So thank you so much for joining us. And once again, um, you can see our kids and sleep story. It's going to be on tomorrow morning at about 7.15ish um, during our 7 a.m. show. You can also find all of our stories online, fox4kc.com slash sleep. Um, so we have them all lined up for you right there. Um, if you need to go back and reference these uh, very important stories, hopefully we have helped helped you learn a little something about sleep this week. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.